Please join me in John chapter 17 once again today as we continue our study of this glorious passage, John chapter 17, looking at verses 20 through 23 today. As God's people, we do understand that we are to seek to grow to be more like Him, and that includes loving the things that He loves, but just as well, we are to hate the things that He hates. And fortunately, we do have help knowing what God hates because he put those things in a list for us in the Bible. It's found in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. So I'll just read that for us. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are seven things which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and number seven, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That last one is what is most applicable to our study today, the fact that God hates disunity amongst his people, and as well, he hates people who stir up disunity and strife among his people. Our passage today is the next section of Jesus' prayer on the night before his crucifixion. So far in our study of John 17, we have found Jesus on that night before his crucifixion, first praying for himself, that was verses 1 through 5, then he moved on to pray for the 11 disciples who were with him, That's the longest section of the prayer, verses 6 through 19. Now in the final section of the chapter, Jesus makes petitions aimed specifically at the church or for the church. In other words, for all who would come to be his followers in the future. It starts this section of the prayer in verse 20 and then runs through verse 26. As we know, the church was founded, we would say, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That is when the Holy Spirit came to indwell all true believers from that point onward, living within them to empower them, uniting them to Christ, baptizing them into the body of Christ, the church. Jesus knew that was coming. He knew it was always the sovereign purpose of God for him, the Son, in covenant with the Father and the Spirit to build a church that would span the generations to come made up of people, both Jew and non-Jew, or Jew and Gentile, as the scripture says, people redeemed by his atoning blood. And this is whom Jesus now prayed for, a prayer that we're going to see this time and next time breaks down into two Request. Today, just the first one, verses 20 to 23. Request number one, a request for a unified church. A request for a unified church. The theme of this little section, verses 20 through 23, is actually captured in the phrase at the beginning of verse 21. It says there that they may all be one. And then that theme is also repeated in the middle of verse 22. You can look there, that they may be one. 
Now, this might actually be surprising to some that the first thing on Jesus' mind, the greatest burden of his heart, we could say, when it came to praying for future believers was this, unity. But as we saw in the introduction to the sermon today, it should not be surprising because God hates disunity and the spreading of strife among his people. So Jesus prayed about this. He prayed for a unified church. Now, as we examine this first request, we can make some observations about this unity. There are three of these observations that we'll take note of today about this unity that Jesus prayed for. Number one, this unity has a particular boundary. This unity has a particular boundary. In other words, this prayer for unity applied only to specific people. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That term these, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these points back to the 11 disciples. What he prayed for them was specifically for them. Although, as I pointed out to you, by extension, there were some timeless truths in that prayer that would apply to us as well. But now, Jesus made it clear that he was moving on to pray for future followers. Here in our verse, Jesus calls these future followers something. It says, those also who believe in me through their word. That term word translates the Greek term logos. We've seen it Before, you can look back in verse 17, and there the term is equated with truth, the word, truth. And that is the point here as well. The people Jesus prayed for are those who, throughout the coming centuries, would believe the truth. This is the truth that the 11 disciples would pass along in their preaching. Once the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to indwell them and to empower them, just as Jesus promised. I'll remind you of that promise. One place we find it is back in chapter 16 of John, verse 13. Christ told them, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. In other words, all the truth that the disciples had been learning from Jesus directly as they lived life with him for the three years he was on earth, and then later that truth that was clarified and even expanded in them by the Holy Spirit, all that truth would become the substance of their preaching and even the content of what we now know as the New Testament. And Jesus says here that many would come to believe that, the truth, that word, and thus become true Christians. There is no such thing as being a true Christian and a lack of belief in the word, the truth. So that is exactly what happened in the years that followed. Many people began to hear the truth and respond to it in faith. It's happened throughout the centuries of church history. Whenever faithful preachers and whenever faithful church members have proclaimed the truth, the truth of God's word, many have come to believe and follow Christ. When someone believes the word, that individual then is a true Christian. 
They are united to Christ. They become a member of the church. Now by that, I don't mean a member of a specific local body. That is important, of course, to be a part of a local church, but you can join a a local church in a variety of ways. It's up to any given church leadership to decide what process is best for them. We have our process here, as you know, for joining this local body called Twin City Bible Church. However, there is only one way to join what we sometimes call the universal church, the great redeemed church for which Jesus prayed for that night. The only way is by believing the word of God as given through the apostles of Christ and then the scriptures. That's how people today are still added to Christ's church. These words are timeless. Romans 10 verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's how it happens. The Holy Spirit uses truth to birth somebody spiritually so that they can respond in faith and repentance and follow Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again. That's the new birth. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So back to Jesus' prayer. For all those who have believed the word, His prayer for all those who are thus part of his church. Jesus says that among all these true followers of his, something is very important, and that is unity. But that is the only group he's concerned about when it comes to unity. There is a boundary on this unity that he's praying for, and that boundary is the truth itself. It is belief in the truth. And that is crucial to understand. This unity is not merely referring to this idea of all people who just make some sort of superficial expression and belief in Jesus, of being a Christian, should somehow just unite in love with one another. And that's because not all who claim that are actually true believers. To be a genuine Christian, one must embrace by faith the truth that was imparted to the disciples by the Father through the Son and then clarified and expanded by the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about here a superficial unity. This confirms that Jesus wasn't praying for that kind of unity, one that includes every mere professor, every mere church goer. And certainly, he was not saying a unity that involves every religion. Not a superficial unity. What is said here, this boundary also confirms that the unity Jesus envisioned was not just a mere institutional or organizational unity. And that's the problem with what we call the ecumenical movement. It's been around for a long time. The ecumenical movement, an effort to unite all churches and all religions regardless of what they believe. Strangely enough, ecumenism seeks to justify that attempt of uniting all religions based upon what Jesus prayed here in John 17. In other words, ecumenism assumes that Jesus was referring to something outward, an outward physical 
organizational unity. That is the position of the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. That false religion insists that even Christian unity demands an institutional oneness, a bureaucratic oneness. Yet, when you go to examine the early church in the book of Acts, you don't find that. You don't find this hard and fast, clear-cut, structural hierarchy. We find something different. People united because they shared the same spiritual life in Christ. So true unity. It's not a superficial unity. It's not an institutional unity. It is a spiritual unity and therefore one that demands belief in God's truth. Interestingly, people say we have to compromise for the sake of of unity. We have to compromise truth, compromise doctrine. And far from that being the biblical perspective, we're actually told as God's people not to jettison the truth, not to compromise the truth, but actually to fight for it. Jude, verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's why the true church cannot unite with those who deny the essential truths of the gospel. We see warnings about that in the New Testament. Paul wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia to confront them because they were listening and imbibing, embracing a false gospel. Listen to Galatians 1 verse 9. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The same author of the Gospel of John that we're studying wrote the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 2nd John chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, we find these words. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not even give him a greeting. And I've quoted this verse for you on more than one occasion. It's the bottom line on all this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The answer is ultimately nothing because they live by two different worldviews. You see, this all actually confirms that as we pursue unity, amongst other professing Christians, we cannot set aside all matters of truth all matters of doctrine, just for the sake of love, someone might say. In fact, genuine biblical love cannot be divorced from biblical truth. You remember these words from Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 15? Speak the truth in love. They go together. So it is kind of confusing and amazing that some say that the reason Christians can't get along is because of the emphasis on doctrine. In other words, since we're never going to agree on everything, all Christian truth, all biblical teaching, then the only way to have unity is just to dispense with doctrine altogether. Minimizing doctrine, seeking the lowest common denominator of belief, that's certainly not what Jesus was thinking. The unity that Jesus was concerned about is a spiritual unity in the truth 
of the gospel. Therefore, it is the truth that determines the boundaries of this unity we're talking about. You remove scripture, that does not promote unity. In fact, according to Jesus here, since it has to do with the word, responding to the word, removing scripture actually destroys true spiritual unity. There's another related issue implied, by the way. Not only are we not to just jettison doctrine and, and the Bible, we're not to add to it either. And some people do that. Legalism. Extreme fundamentalism. Man-made rules. Extra-biblical doctrine. Sadly, those have often divided Christians who should be one. Now, of course, there's an issue then we definitely need to keep in mind. And that is, as we talk about then the right kind of unity amongst all true believers, here's something we have to keep in mind. It's the necessity to discern essential or non-negotiable doctrines from those that are not essential to Christian oneness or unity. And we would say that the Bible helps us with that as well. The New Testament, and I don't have time to just make the case on all these, but the New Testament does prioritize doctrines such as these that cannot be compromised or ignored and still call yourself a church or a Christian. Like the deity of Christ. We can't compromise on that. He's not just a good teacher and a good man, a good example. He's God. That's a core doctrine of the Christian faith. As is this, that Jesus is the promised Messiah which means he is the world's only savior from sin. It includes this fact that sin is man's biggest problem. Sin is what separates us from God, the creator of all things. And therefore, on the list of non-negotiable is the understanding of Christ's death as a substitutionary atonement, dying in the place of sinners who deserve the death. We cannot jettison the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. That's core to the gospel. We cannot set aside the doctrine of justification, having a standing before God, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works or merit of any kind. Now I'll add one more to the list. Unity and truth also requires us to at least agree on the inspiration and the inerrancy of God's word, because if we don't do that, then authority does not exist and it's compromised. The point is, doctrines other than these core teachings, we would not say are essential to Christian unity, even though they may still be important to us, even though they're important to a local church. And how what it means to form a local body, doctrines like what? Our view of baptism, water baptism, eschatological positions, views on spiritual gifts, precise details about church government. Some of these doctrines are what make up denominational distinctions, which are fine. But the point is that despite our denominational differences, we can still cultivate and still enjoy a unity in spirit and mission with all other believers who affirm the true gospel and believe God's word and embrace the vital doctrines of the Christian gospel.
Jesus was concerned about it. We should be as well. But this unity has that particular boundary, truth. Here's a second observation. Number two, this unity has a particular pattern, a particular pattern, a model for us to follow. It's in verse 21. Jesus prayed that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The unity that the church must enjoy is to be rooted in, even patterned after, we would say, Jesus' own unity with the Father in the Godhead, the Trinity. Therefore, since Jesus says our unity should be like the unity amongst the members of the Godhead, we need to understand then what did that oneness and unity look like? What was it based upon? What were the common elements? I've compiled those from various readers. Various authors I've read, here are several conclusions as to what that unity in the Godhead was like. First of all, the Father and the Son are united in their goal or their motive for all they do. They're each equally committed to the same goal, and that is their own glory, the glory of God. Therefore, the true church is to be united on that. In that common commitment to that, the glory of God Father and Son are united in the mission, and it is a particular kind of mission, the gospel mission. The church then can be united in that in pursuing the evangelizing of lost sinners with the gospel. The Father and Son are united in truth, which we've already seen, but to press that further, the church is to be unified in its commitment to proclaiming that, proclaiming God's word as the singular, inspired, and authoritative source of truth. Father and Son were united on that. Father and Son are united in holiness, their own perfect character, doing righteous deeds. We are thus to be known as a people, the church, people who are pursuing that, pursuing holiness and godliness as a lifestyle. One more, we could say the Father and Son are united in love, perfect love for one another. Therefore, we're told this in Colossians 3.14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The point is, ours is a oneness that's modeled after all that, patterned after the oneness of the Son with the Father, and that's the kind of oneness that Jesus prayed for. So it, it, it's, a, it's not an institutional Unity, it's not an organizational unity, it's a spiritual unity. Therefore, we could say even it's a mystical unity. And Jesus works in his people to produce this mystical unity because the life we share as Christians is nothing less than participation in the life of the Trinity, the Godhead. Listen again to John 14, verse 20. I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. I mean, that's the deep end of the swimming pool right there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, our fellowship is with the Father. Our fellowship, our united fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So there is a, a mystical element to that life that we share because it's patterned after the life that exists in the Godhead, we could also say it's, it's an organic kind of unity because we are made then part of all one body. 
And that's why the New Testament uses the idea of a body as one of its primary metaphors for describing the church. We're part of a body, like the members of a physical body are all united to that body. Paul writes this in Romans 12, verse 5. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, just like in a physical body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of, of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. That's the body of Christ, the church. And within this body, there's this mutual dependency of Christians on one another. And the whole church ends up being affected by the experience of any part. It's a primary metaphor, this body, to describe this organic unity that we have with all true believers. There's another metaphor, though, that's common in the New Testament for the church, and that's a family. We're part of a family. How do you join a family, whether you're either born into it or adopted into it? And we can say that's true of, of us, both of them. We enter the church through the new spiritual birth. At the same time, Scripture says that we're adopted into Christ. So like any other family, the church expresses its, this unity that is this, this bond of mutual commitment, mutual affection. We are pursuing a common cause. And all this is possible only because our, of our fellowship sharing the life of the triune God. We all share this oneness because the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father and Jesus is in his followers by his Spirit. Jesus made one more comment on the nature of that unity. Look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. Now he brings up this idea of glory that he's given to us. This is not the glory that Jesus enjoyed, his pre-existing glory before he came to earth in eternity past, but it's the glory that he manifested while carrying out his earthly mission. That's why John wrote back in chapter 1, verse 14, in the prologue of this gospel, he says, we saw his glory. We saw it. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. As they observed Jesus, they saw him exhibiting grace and truth. John chapter 2, verse 11, talking about the first miracle that he did at the wedding in Cana. This beginning of his signs, they were miraculous signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and did what? Manifested his glory by performing that miracle. In other words, when he was here on earth, he manifested the very character of God. He manifested the power of God. He did all of that in all that he was, all that he did. And it says here that he has given it to his followers. So that's the best understanding of this glory here that he's given to us. It's the manifestation of the character of God, the power of God. We share in that as we serve him and even as we suffer all true Christians have this life, eternal life, as a gift from the Lord. The whole life of God within our experience. A life of joy and peace and love because of our faith in Christ. And since we share in the character of God and the life of God within us, then we can experience unity. 
And the unity the Godhead enjoyed is repeated one more time in verse 23. But he does add an additional thought. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, there it is again, that they may be perfected in unity. That term perfected is a verb that has to do with maturing or becoming complete. So Jesus was making the point now that our unity is something that can grow in maturity as we grow. So evidence of our own spiritual maturity is our pursuit of unity. Evidence of our being completed in Christ is our guarding of the unity of the church. So two observations. This unity has a particular boundary. This unity has a particular pattern. And third and final, number three, this unity has a particular intent. A particular intent. And we find it in verse 21, beginning with those words, so that, so that. That indicates a purpose. It's a purpose clause. So that, Jesus says, the world may believe that you sent me. This purpose clause confirms that the unity that Jesus prayed for is intended to be observable, noticed by somebody, by whom? The lost world. This is about our witness in the world. It depends on this unity. God's intended result of the church's unity is that our ability to bear witness to the true identity of Jesus, whom he says is the one sent by God, which means the Savior for the world, the Savior from sin, our unity is necessary to maximize our effectiveness in evangelism. It's because our unity, when it's lived out the way God intends, is compelling. It's otherworldly, unworldly. It's only explainable by people by admitting that Jesus must be then who they say he is, the one sent by the Father. To say it all differently, our unity increases our credibility. But sadly, the opposite of that is also true. Without unity, our witness is negatively impacted. Party spirit in the church. Christians attacking Christians whether personally or on the internet and online, encourages unbelief by the worldly people who observe it all. Because our lives are contradicting our words, and therefore we're actually encouraging them, not only allowing, but encouraging them to cry out to us, hypocrites. We're giving them allowance for rejecting the gospel message and to even feel superior to us when they do it. So again, the point is this, unless the church is unified, based upon unity and the way it's explained in this passage, Christians cannot expect to give authentic, credible testimony to our faith in Jesus to the world. Perhaps your mind is going back to a previous verse in John, just the way mine did as I studied this. It's John chapter 13, verse 35, a landmark verse that makes the same essential point about our witness in the world. John 13, verse 35, Jesus told these, those 11 disciples in the upper room that night, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is love for other true brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that is the church's ultimate 
as one writer said, the ultimate apologetic to the lost world. And that agape love is certainly required if we're going to manifest a unified front to the lost world. Now, Jesus repeats this intended result in verse 23 with one additional thought. You see it again. So that, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. You see, it's our unity that allows us to express and proclaim the Father's love for a dark, lost, and hostile world. I mean, we're the ones who've come to know that love personally. And it's an intense love, a a faithful, eternal love. Because we're loved by the Father in the same way that the members of the Godhead love for one another. And in Jesus' thinking, when he prayed, a church that experiences and manifests the testimony of God's supernatural love will not fail to get the world's attention. How concerned then we should be over any grievance, over any preference, over any agenda of our own that would ever promote division in the church, the family of God. The bottom line is captured well by Pastor MacArthur. I'll quote it. Loving unity of the church made visible is used by God to produce a desire on the part of unbelievers to desire the experience of that same love. On the other hand, where there are carnal divisions, strife, backbiting, and quarreling in the church, it drives unbelievers away. Why would they want to be part of such a hypocritical group that is at cross purposes with itself? I'll put that in my own words. They don't want this because they can get all that drama where they work. They can get that kind of drama in their neighborhood and in their own families. We've got to be different than that. This is much too long a story for me to tell you the whole thing. I'll just give you a little glimpse of it. It concerns the famous Bible teacher, Harry Ironside. Maybe you've heard of him. He understood the importance of unity amongst all true believers. He was on a long train trip reading his Bible. A lot of things happened happened because of that, but they actually started having Bible studies and services on the train. People started coming to it, but... A woman who saw him, though, doing this and participating in some of that, finally came to him and asked, what denomination are you? He answered, I belong to the same denomination that David did. What was that, she asked. I didn't know that David belonged to any. Ironside replied by quoting Psalm 119, verse 63. Here it is. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. And the lady replied, yes, that is a good church to belong to. See, we need to have that attitude. It's the responsibility of everyone who's truly part of the body of Christ to do their part in maintaining this full visibility of unity that believers actually do possess because we share the same spiritual life. But here's the deal. To have this kind of unity requires something from each of us here in our own local body. It starts there, and that may be the most difficult. I mean, in one sense, it's easier to think in terms of the church at large and loving people, but what about the ones we have to see all the time? Perhaps you've heard that famous little poem, 
to dwell above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that is a different story. It's where unity must start. It can be difficult. But things like this are required of us here at Twin City Bible Church to make sure we are practicing it here so we can have the right mindset about the world at large and the church at large. Things like this, like showing deference to one another. You see, we can disagree on many issues, and we do, but in love, we should still esteem one another, respect one another, even deferring to others at times so that we're not making mountains out of molehills. Showing deference. Patience is required. That's not the same thing as tolerance, you know. Patience is more positive. It's intentionally being patient with others, praying for them even, even, and trusting that God is at work in their lives and in the situation that's going on. It's believing the best about other people. That's really hard to do at times. But it's right to choose not to believe the worst about people. Besides, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 does say this about love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Our default setting ought to be to believe the best. Here's something else. Seeing difficulties with other people that can happen sometimes. To see them a certain way, not to react to those. We, we might call those times when we're rubbed the wrong way. I've often wondered where that expression came from until just recently. My son and daughter-in-law and two grandkids, you may know this, about three days ago, they lit out to drive across the United States to move to California for a while. Left with us two cats. And so Pam and I are trying to learn to be cat people. You know, they're a certain kind of person. Trying to understand the cats. Very difficult. They, they, don't, they don't come when you call. That's the first thing I've learned. They do what they want. But they do like to be rubbed sometimes, but one of the cats sort of attacked my wife and tried to bite her, and so she stays away from that one. If it needs to be dealt with, she makes me go pick it up and do something with it. But they only like to be rubbed a certain way. I can tell that. So that, it must have come from that, whoever created that expression being rubbed the wrong way. They have cats. How do we see those times? Our default setting should not be to react, but to see it as an opportunity to love and to help shepherd someone. That's the opposite of reacting, becoming angry and irritated and offended, easily offended by things. It means seeking to enfold new people warmly into your life and to fellowship. That's hard to do. It's been increasingly hard here at our church, hasn't it? So many new people coming, and I'm just like you. I, I can't remember names, and I can't remember if I even met them. You know? So I have to tell them that. Have we met? Yeah, I, we talked for about an hour this morning before church. And I go, <laughs> no, I knew that. Um, it's hard, but our default setting ought to be, instead of gathering into our little cliques, or just avoiding somebody we don't know or ignoring them, it ought to be go to them, meet them. It means not looking suspiciously at people that are different than us, 
different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different experiences, but instead seeking to be this living community of faith that actually invites and embraces people. You see, it starts here like that. So you ask yourself, what's your default setting when you're wronged, offended? What's your default setting when you see someone new, someone you don't know? What's your default setting when you find out in conversation there actually are some differences between you and that person on some preference issues? If we have the right mindset, it's the mindset that Jesus prayed that we would have because his request was for a unified church. Let me just leave you with these three verses to guide you. Romans 15, verses 5 to 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Finally, one from the Old Testament, familiar words, Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Let's pray for this. Father, thank you for this reset of our hearts and thinking this morning. We confess our default setting is not right on a lot of issues. We've trained ourselves to fear relationships. We've trained ourselves to be awkward and uncomfortable. We're around people that we don't know or not like us or that we disagree with. We so easily get offended. And we have no reason to. We thank you, Lord, that all those weaknesses and sins are included in what Jesus paid for on the cross for us. But Lord, help us with this. We're weak and frail. We need your strength and your help. Help us to guard the unity in our own local church here so that we can have the right mindset about the universal church at large. Help us never to be guilty of trying to stir up strife and division. Lord, forgive us for even the competitive spirit that so easily gets in our heart about other churches, even in our city and area. Help us to be mindful to pray for them and to be glad for what you're doing through them when the gospel, the true gospel is proclaimed. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who really is not a follower of Christ yet. Open their hearts to believe the gospel so that they might be saved. In our Savior's name, amen.